My kids love their snacks just like everyone else, but I'm really picky about what they eat. And if it's going to be something in a package, I want it to be healthy, high quality, and something that's not going to break the bank. I recently discovered Thrive Market and they check all the boxes. My kids are loving the seaweed snacks, cinnamon applesauce, and the skinny dip dark chocolate almonds. What I love most about Thrive Market is that everything is organic and non-GMO, and it's more affordable than what you'll find in the stores. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash food issues. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a low-income family. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. This is Food Issues. In every episode, we bring you experts to tackle the real challenges around feeding kids and offer practical insight to help organizations, communities, and parents create change. I'm your host, Julie Revelon. In the U.S., $218 billion of food is wasted every year. Meanwhile, 30 million adults and 12 million children are currently facing food insecurity. How are we going to feed 9 billion people on the planet by 2050? The answer is actually we could probably do it now if we just started conserving food and not wasting as much as we do. That's Dr. Yervashi Rangan, an environmental health scientist, toxicologist, and investigator with more than 25 years of experience deciphering food systems to educate consumers, companies, government agencies, and philanthropic investors on the best systems to support. Dr. Rangan is a national spokesperson and advocate on a wide range of food safety risks, sustainable solutions, product choices, and meaningful labels. She is also the chief science advisor to the Grace Communications Foundation, where she works on a wide range of communication and messaging initiatives on sustainable food issues, including foodprint.org. We'll talk about food waste in the U.S., lessons learned from the pandemic, and what you can do to reduce food waste at home. So Dr. Rangan, it is so good to welcome you to the Food Issues Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great. Well, I'm so glad to talk about how to cut down on food waste in the age of COVID. And this is a really timely and relevant topic. And so let's dive right in. What's the difference between food waste and food loss? Sure. Um, You know, either way, we're losing food throughout our food production system. Food waste tends to focus on what we're wasting once we buy the food and then we're at home in the preparation of it and the cooking of it and what gets wasted uh, from not eating altogether. So food waste really focuses on that particular part of the food consumption chain. Food loss really pertains to what's happening before that. And so that starts at the farm. Uh, It starts with uh, 40%, I think, is also wasted at the farm gate. So that's food loss. In other words, no one ever bought that. It was just lost. And it turns out everywhere along the chain, from the farm to the store, uh, can also cause food loss. And there's food lost all the way along that chain. Um, It's for a couple of different reasons. Um, There's a whole grading system around food and retail. And so if it if an orange or a potato doesn't make the exact sizing or look grade, they will be um, 
deliberately put aside. And so there's some loss that is actually quite deliberate uh, in order to meet retail guidelines. Uh, and then on the other hand, there's just loss that happens. But those are the few different ways in which we can get food waste and food loss. Okay, great. And so food waste is a big problem in the United States. And studies show that we waste about 40% of our food, which can cost us $218 billion per year. So what are some other reasons that there's food waste in America? You know, it's so true. And when you break down those numbers, it's about just a little over 200 pounds per person is is estimated to be wasted every year. Wow. Um, so if we just sort of think about that, that's a lot of food. And so what are we doing in our daily activities that might contribute to that? And the first thing is food spoilage and uh, just not even using the food before it actually goes bad. And so you can obviously think of your vegetables and um, other fresh products in your refrigerator that would just go unused because there's simply too much of it. Uh, the other way food gets wasted at home is through over-preparing food. So you make too much and then you throw away what you don't use. Um, another thing can also be, uh, date label confusion and a lot of the sell by dates out there, especially on canned foods and things like that are just not federally regulated. And so it may be, you might be throwing away certain foods that don't need to be thrown away, um, and don't necessarily expire, uh, overbuying food again, that can, you know, it's not independent from some of these other things. If you buy too much and it goes bad, it can be wasted. And, um, you know, all of this sort of comes down to planning and, 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 and not planning enough really when you're both buying your food as well as preparing. it. Okay. What about grocery stores? Do they discard of food that has been sitting on the shelf or is past that sell by date or use by date or something like that? They do, in fact, and um, they they often will do that and then just get rid of that food. And that's where date labeling is actually a huge uh, focus point in and of itself in terms of what are the requirements for date labeling when is it imperative? You know, when is it a safety issue? And when is it just a sort of it's best tasting if you eat it by a certain date? Um, on canned foods, like I said, there's really very little regulation around that. Milk's a little different in a fresh product or a meat product. There really is a finite lifetime to those products before they go rancid. Um, and so that is in that's an example of sort of safety related um, date labeling. So stores will most certainly pay attention to those labels on fresh products. Um, but they also may take further action on some of these other products simply because there's never really been any good guidance for how those things are labeled in the first place. And people, uh, assume and not ununderstandably that that might be a date they should throw something out. But it turns out there's really not a lot of guidelines behind a lot of the date labeling on non-fresh foods um, or non-perishable foods. And so that also leads to a lot of waste as well. Yeah, I would imagine that would be a lot of waste. And so do any, do any of the grocery store chains have efforts in place to reduce the amount of food that goes to waste? 
I think that it's something that they're struggling with, but we're all struggling with in terms of what to do with this. And I think that's exactly why food waste has been taken to a higher level in terms of trying to put some regulations in place that can help retailers make better decisions about where things go and when. Um, But I do also think that there are, whether it's restaurants uh, or retailers, also ways to work with uh, food pantries as well, so that if they're going to take things off the shelves that are not necessarily expired, or if they're going to say they have an oversupply of something, that there are other interesting groups cropping up everywhere that are acting as a bridge between excess food and oversupply and being able to shuttle that food uh, to places of need. Yeah, that's great. I was going to ask you about that because I've always found that my husband actually works in the restaurant business and I know a lot behind the scenes. And um, I've always felt like that was really such a tragedy when, you know, we'd go out to eat and to think how much food gets wasted every day. And my, my daughters and I, we volunteer for an organization locally that combats food insecurity uh, in the area. And um, they actually, they, they get, they buy food for the pantry, but they also get a lot of expired food like canned goods um, donated. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it sounds like there has to be more of a concerted effort between all these groups working together. We have more than enough food in the U.S., but yet we have these high rates of food insecurity. That's exactly right, Julie. We do have so much food insecurity in this country, and yet we produce so much food. And actually, you may have heard um, how are we going to feed 9 billion people on the planet by 2050? The answer is actually, we could probably do it now if we just started conserving food and not wasting as much as we do. That's how significant the food waste problem is. And unlike other food issues, food waste is hard to, uh, support, um, Everyone should be against food waste. We should all be thinking of ways to make that more efficient. And so it's an it's an issue in food that um, the majority of folks can rally around. Um, it isn't partisan. It isn't necessarily uh, pertinent to any one group of people or uh, a niche issue. This is relevant to all of us and something we should all be supporting in the various different ways that we can. Right. And so, you know, with COVID, 29 million adults and they and at least 8 million children are now struggling with food insecurity. And so how does that work if we reduce food waste at home? Can it help feed others or what what really is if if we're decreasing food waste? What's the correlation to helping people who face food insecurity? Yeah, that's a great question. Food insecurity is definitely a huge issue. And I think where we can most help in terms of food insecurity is um, perhaps in our own thinking of how we're consuming our food, you could actually, if you were saving more on the food you were buying for your own household and being very efficient about that, there are ways then for you to spend uh, the other money you would have spent to support other people to donate to food pantries. I know here in the New York City, we actually have community refrigerators. So You could actually buy things at the grocery store when you're buying your own groceries and drive a bit over to a community fridge and put that in. And in that way, it's a really nice way of feeling like you're doing something to help others who don't have as much as you do. And at the same time, 
you want to be using what you buy as efficiently as possible. And um, it, again, a little planning ahead of time goes a long way toward helping you save food and uh, minimize the amount of food waste that you are generating. Um, and at the same time, um, looking at food insecurity, we need to sort of widen our lens a little bit more and think about how, yes, we as individuals can help offset that, but then how can our supermarkets offset that? How can our restaurants offset that? Um, indeed, how can even a farm start to offset that when so much is not even getting off the farm? And so there are a lot of different ways to think about food. Um, moving food to those who are in need um, and doing that in a very deliberate fashion rather than in a sort of, as a sort of afterthought. Okay. That's really interesting. I love that idea of delivering food to a refrigerator. That's great. So in the beginning of the pandemic, what were the issues the U.S. faced at every level? So we know that people were definitely stockpiling food, um, but there were supply chain issues. So what, what was that? Help our listeners understand that. Yeah, the COVID really brought, it really raised to the surface what we thought of as a very efficient system. And by that, we were a very consolidated food distribution system. And that means that if you're producing food in this country and you want it to get into the mainstream where it's going to get to a supermarket, you're in what we typically call the mass marketplace. And because so much of the food that is produced goes into this mass system, um, one, you can't just be a very small farmer and get into that system. That's always been a problem. So it's really the sort of bigger um, supply, more factory type farms. But those are the places that are tend to be uh, they tend to have the most access to the distribution system. And then once they get into these, it's a very consolidated distribution system. There's just a handful of companies there. And then there's just a handful of supermarkets. I think there's four or five companies that basically run 80% of the supermarkets in the country. So if you think about that level of consolidation in the food system, uh, there's an element of efficiency, but what COVID really did was put that to the test. And in the end, we found that that so-called efficient system was actually very vulnerable. And part of that had to do with the fact that restaurants, institutions, schools were not sourcing their food anymore from large distributors. In fact, they weren't open. And so they these large distribution chains didn't have anywhere to deliver the food. And what ended up happening is as those chains started to get more and more vulnerable as COVID hit, and of course, COVID was not discriminatory, and all of these sectors got hit in a certain way, they really were not able, both from a distribution point of view and hitting some roadblocks, as well as a production point of view, able to sort of keep up with that uh, lopsided demand and uh, peaks of demand that would come up. And it's been really interesting when you sort of zoom out to see who did succeed in all of this during COVID. Um, and it's actually the smaller farms, the smaller distribution systems, the more local distribution systems, 
those types of systems, the more sustainable systems, actually some of them did quite well during this period. One farm in Georgia, for example, that's uh, part organic and grass-fed, actually increased their staff during COVID um, significantly. And that's because they had so much more business. They had much more direct purchasing um, and they were just able to move everything off because they had more of a direct to market connection. And so farmers markets, smaller farms, these local uh, distribution and aggregate centers, food hubs, these are the types of systems that have actually proved to be quite resilient. And in a way, a lot of uh, folks who have been working in food systems for a long time have known about these vulnerabilities, um, but COVID really put it to the test and really showed where the weaknesses were and why it is an over-centralized system like that actually doesn't serve people in an emergency situation. It is not very flexible. It is not very adaptive. Um, and we have often pushed for a more decentralized system to food because it makes sense on so many different levels for local economies, for smaller farmers. We need more diversity in our system in order to increase the resilience of our system. And that goes all the way from food production to how it is we actually distribute our food into the food system. Having just a few companies control distribution or control meat processing or control the supermarkets have really led to this um, real crisis in many ways of the consolidated food system and shown how vulnerable it actually is. Wow, that's fascinating. And so... In theory, the way that that would work is these distributors would be able to provide food to anyone, right? Grocery stores, restaurants, it, it wouldn't be only certain sectors like it was that we found out during COVID. There's, there is that, that distributors could actually, you know, theoretically distribute to others, maybe smaller locations. But I think that the real uh, game changer in that is actually decentralizing distribution itself. And so what that would do, and there's an example here in the Northeast, we have a, a meat aggregator called Walden Local, for mm -hmm. example, mm -hmm. and they aggregate um, from a variety of different farms in the Northeast, and then they, they deliver to those who have a monthly subscription. Uh, and in that way, they are able to provide smaller farmers from from our, you know, your local region kind of thing um, and aggregate some very high quality food that would not have been able to even get into the mainstream distribution system to begin with. And then that sort of micro distributor is able to distribute on their own. And incidentally, their business has also gone through the roof during COVID. Um, and so it's an example of a different type of distribution that would then enable local small farmers uh, to participate in that. The economy of food is so global at this point, it is virtually uh, impossible for a small farmer to get into that system without a whole lot of work and a whole lot of profit loss. Um, 
Whereas these localized distribution uh, centers can actually allow farmers to not only have the access, but retain more of the profit in the end because they're selling more direct to the consumer. And and this is what we need to look at really when we want to think about how do we create a resilient food system that can actually support our local economies. What I kind of love in my own purchasing is that I've gone from buying meat, um, even at my local store, and even if I'm wanting very good meat like organic or grass-fed, to actually now knowing the name of my farmer that is stamped on my meat product that I get from my local distributor. And uh, every piece of meat now that... I or my family eat, we know exactly how it's produced. We know exactly where it came from. And we know that we are supporting our own very local economies. And there's something really gratifying about all of that. Um, And there is a case for really studying, again, how a resilient food system that is adaptable, that can flex during these kind of emergency times Um, and actually keep people afloat and fed uh, in a really effective way. That's great. Yeah, Walden is a great company, and we'll definitely link that. We'll definitely link to them in the show notes. I've used it myself for my family. And so during the pandemic, with all of these problems with the supply chain, did it contribute to food waste? Has anything changed now? And has has there been anything done to remedy the problem? Yeah, there, again symptomatic of this consolidated food system, there was a lot of waste. So for example, we really saw it in the dairy sector where um, milk already is a troubled sector in, uh, we have federal marketing orders, we overproduce in many ways. Um, So we already had a kind of artificial construct in some of these supply systems. And especially in milk, where it doesn't hold for that long, uh, we literally had farmers dumping milk into the waste stream because they there was no other place for it to go. And that was kind of at the beginning of the pandemic. We heard a lot of stories about that and people struggling to figure out where to get their supplies into the food chain. Um, and if they couldn't, they were literally dumping it. Um, We also heard a lot about meat shortages, and that's a bit of a myth, frankly. We were never really in a meat shortage. We had huge stockpiles and freezers from this consolidated system that had massive amounts of meat. And as we all know, we were continuing to process lots of meat, and and that was not, in fact, the problem. Um, when really what we were dealing with was how to actually move the meat out into the distribution systems and where institutions were no longer receiving any of their orders or were closed, this is what started to push back up into the food chain, literally creating surpluses of lots of different things that then ended up getting wasted. Um, So. One one company, one dairy company, for example, started to look at cheese making and starting to put all of their milk into cheese making so that, that could, it, it's called value added, where you could get it into a food product and make it into a food product that then 
um, had added value in the sense that it has added shelf life. Um, and it's, it's sort of another level of product then that can be shipped out. So in that sense, there were some innovative ways of how to deal with that waste. Um, but that said, COVID isn't necessarily the best time to refine all of these things in the <laughs> right. food system. And so in dealing in a pandemic, I think a lot of companies did the best they could. A lot of middle-sized farms had to figure out if I'm not going to be delivering to a large food court in a city, what am I going to be doing now? And there's been a lot of innovation on that sort of mid-sized farm scale. And as I was mentioning before, this farm in Georgia is selling much more direct to consumer. And that has been, I think, a... um, light at the end of the tunnel for a lot of these farmers was how could they uh, get their product more directly to consumers. And as we talked about before, the current distribution system uh, isn't conducive to that. And so they've it's been a challenge because a lot of these suppliers have had to take on this challenge one by one by one. And that's been incredibly difficult. And I think that's where when we get out of this pandemic, we do need to do a lot of thinking about how we can, in fact, move toward a system that is a little more direct, that is a little more decentralized so that we don't end up in this kind of situation again. Yeah, definitely. And so also the other issue was that the meat plant workers were were working in close contact and many of them were getting COVID. Has that been remedied at this point? There has been a few lawsuits filed on behalf of meat plant and meatpacking workers. Uh, What listeners maybe know, but maybe don't, is that these workers are in already incredibly dangerous conditions. Meatpacking and processing is one of the most dangerous and um, harmful industries out there in terms of occupational hazards. That was already the case before we even got to COVID. And what COVID did was completely and unfortunately show how vulnerable that particular part of our food system really is, how incredibly vulnerable these workers are who were considered both highly essential but not essential enough to protect adequately. Um, And because adequate protections were not fully in place before COVID, um, COVID only exacerbated that. More than 250 meat plant workers have died because of COVID. Thousands more have been infected from COVID. If you think about it, it's really um, abhorrent and unbelievable that we as a society have put these incredibly low-paid uh, workers in harm's way to begin with, but then did not take the additional steps to prevent this kind of transmission from occurring. And uh, it it's from a variety of different things, both working in close proximity to one another, um, air ventilation in these plants, and the line speeds, which are absolutely ridiculous, where you're processing dozens, if not hundreds, of animals. Uh, within minutes of one another, 
Um, that also, that rapid speed has been problematic in terms of uh, worker safety, both physical hazards as well as biological hazards. Uh, and it only got much worse during COVID. And it really did sort of blow the lid off of how incredibly dangerous these jobs are and how this industry has not done enough to protect the workers that are actually producing this food. Wow. You don't even realize this when you go to the grocery store and, and pick up a product. Um, has any of this improved or are there plans for it to improve? Yeah, there are some really great NGO groups that have been working on this very issue and filing lawsuits at the state levels uh, on behalf of meat plant uh, workers. Again, these are workers who don't have a lot of resource themselves. Their own lives are on the margins. And uh, so it's, and these companies have not done enough. Um, so it's really fallen to the NGO community, uh, legal groups um, to protect these individuals. And we are seeing those cases um, being taken up. And hopefully there will be some retribution out of this. Okay, great. So we talked about household waste being one of the, the major drivers of food waste. Um, during COVID, you know, we all are definitely been cooking more and, and in the beginning shopping for more canned goods and non-perishables. Um, has anything changed on that front? And has it, do you think it's impacted food waste in any way? You know, I think that uh, it is interesting if that we are buying more food. And because of that, we might expect that more food waste then would occur because of that if we obviously didn't change anything. And so kind of going back to the things people should have been doing from the get-go pre-COVID, uh, it's even more important post-COVID that people manage it. And, you know, one thing, again, just kind of going to planning. Um, sometimes people go out, and especially in covid they overbuy. And in that case, that's not helpful to anybody for you to have a surplus of things sitting in your house. The other thing is that just diet-wise, we don't really need to be eating more processed foods. And COVID shouldn't be a reason necessarily to rely on more processed foods. I guess what's really nice is some of us have actually had the luxury of being able to cook more, of eating fresher foods, um, and in that sense, uh, spending a little more time planning for the meals um, can go a long way toward, one, right-sizing your purchase when you buy, two, um, not overbuying, but really just buying what you need. Third is thinking about increasing the frequency of, of your purchasing so that you're not overbuying in any one um, in any one day, but rather stretching out your purchasing so that you can buy the fresh food you need closer to the time you know you're going to eat it. Um, and those things can go tremendously far in terms of uh, reducing the amount of food waste. And then when you're preparing your food, you know, we have lots of tips on food print about all the different parts of food that you can actually use for other things and how to maximize on the scraps that you do create, um, you know, all the way down to composting. And in that way, there are lots of steps in the home to reduce food waste 
um, starting from your planning on how you're buying your food all the way to how you're preparing it and serving it and then what you do with the scraps from there. Great. Well, Dr. Rangan, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about cooking sustainably and composting. If you're like me, you want to get a healthy and delicious dinner on the table every night. But with everything you have to do, there's no time to meal plan and search for recipes. But with the Dinner Daily, you don't have to. The Dinner Daily isn't a meal kit, but a personalized dinner planning service that sends you meal plans and an organized grocery shopping list built around your food preferences, dietary needs, and family size. And it's the only service that uses your grocery store's weekly specials to help you save money, up to $1,200 a year or more. The Dinner Daily works with 16,000 grocery stores across the country, and they offer one-click ordering at Kroger stores nationwide and select stop-and-shop stores. The recipes are so healthy and delicious too. My kids love the taco salad and the confetti corn. The Dinner Daily not only saves you money on your grocery bill, but new members get two weeks free. And right now you can try it for 15% off with the code HEALTH15. Just go to thedinnerdaily.com and use code HEALTH15. And now let's get back to this week's episode of Food Issues. So before the break, we were talking about ways that we can reduce food waste at home. And so, Dr. Rangan, I wanted to talk a little bit more. You mentioned cooking sustainably. And so what does that mean and what are some tips for people? Yeah, we on foodprint.org have a lot of really great tips for people for, for what they're cooking and what you might be throwing away that is actually food. So, for example, things like uh, broccoli stems or charred stems, those can all actually be cooked and used. And sometimes they take a little longer than the leaf matter, for example, that they come from to cook, but they can be used. Um, and they're pretty tasty too. So we give lots of tips and even talk about specific vegetables that you can do that with. Then there's vegetables that you buy like radishes or beets that come with greens, you know, a lot of people just throw those greens out. Those greens are pretty tasty. They're edible. And you can actually just separate them, wash them up and cook them as well. And so thinking about your own food preparation and just what you're throwing out, give it all a second thought. Read our articles and you'll find that there's a lot of tips. You're probably throwing things out that could be used for other things as well. The other thing to keep in mind when you're preparing, for example, meat scraps, uh, or you're preparing meat and you've got scraps on meat or bones, is that you can then take those and turn them into broth. And those are really great ways, too, of using some of that excess material. Um, If you don't have enough in any one batch, this is where your freezer is your friend. And those scraps can go into the freezer. And once you have enough collected, you can then take that and and do the next broth or whatever you want to do. The other thing to think about is when you have fruits that are that are over ripening, like bananas can be put in the freezer, actually. And even when they're black, And when you want to make banana bread, you can just pull a few of those bananas out and you can make banana bread with them. Berries also freeze really well. Um, And 
peels are also something interesting that you can do things with if you insist on peeling, which we would say on food print, you really don't need to. You can eat most peels on vegetables. And in fact, that's where a lot of the nutrients are. But if you do peel like things like potato peels, you can actually cook those and make those into uh, potato peel chips. So there's a lot of really interesting things. And then let's you know, once you've done as much as you can with those scraps, then the, then composting becomes the next thing so that we don't just put those food scraps in the trash where all of those nutrients that could be returned back to soil again um, could go. And that's where either municipal composting or your own composting can become something to take all of that food waste uh, vegetable food waste and other um, non-meat food waste and to compost that into something then that becomes food for plants. And you'll find if you do compost your food waste or put it in your municipal uh, compost bin that you will hugely reduce the amount of actual waste that is leaving your house. Um, and so there's a lot of win-wins in thinking a little bit more carefully about how you're preparing your food and what you do with the ends, with the scraps, with the peels uh, after that. And again, we've got a lot more tips on food print for really, you know, teas and all sorts of things that you can do um, with food scraps that are all pretty interesting. Okay. Those are all great tips. I had no idea you could use scraps from potatoes and cook them. That's awesome. I'm going to try that. So in terms of composting, I, in our family, we've taught, we've had this discussion so many times of thinking about getting a compost, but it always seems like a lot of work, a lot of just extra time, but is it, or is it pretty easy to do? It really doesn't have to be at all. And composting is is another one of those really gratifying things because you're watching something, you know, morph into something different right in front of your eyes through the magic of biology. And so the, there's a couple of tricks to good composting so that you can compost easily. And one of those is to understand the texture you're trying to get. It's a carbon to nitrogen ratio. And what that means is we think of it as a brown to green ratio. So the browns are the carbon and greens tend to be your nitrogens. And sometimes greens will become brown and then that's that's converting into carbon. Um, so things like onion skins, coffee grounds, um, those are the carbon. Those are browns that are going to go into your compost heap. Um, Eggshells are also another great example of a carbon that's going to go in there. And then you've got all of your green waste, your nitrogens and other things. And you want to be in about a 30 to 1 balance. So you want to definitely have a lot more carbon than you do uh, green waste. So because we all generate a lot of green waste, the way to offset that a little bit is by adding a little more brown into your compost pile. So one thing we used to do in my household was put the scraps into the center of the heap and then add a little brown on top of that. So if you don't have enough coffee grounds, for example, you could literally put leaf matter in there, dried leaves, and that's another great way to add brown into your compost system. Um, and so if you can keep that balance, you're trying to basically achieve a sponge 
a kind of moist sponge-like texture. If it's too dry, it's not going to compost. And if it's too wet, it's not going to compost properly. So you're trying to achieve something in the middle that is sort of like a uh, just wet sponge. And that is the perfect uh, consistency for bacterial decomposition to occur. And remember, your compost is alive. There are bacteria in there. The heat in the center of a compost pile should go up quite significantly. And there are temperature probes that you can use. But you, you don't need to get super technical about it either. Things will compost in time no matter what. Um, if you have a compost pile, for example, that's pretty fresh and you live in a cold place and you're going into winter and it's freezing, it will slow down. And then when the spring comes and the spring thaw comes, it will pick back up again and start to decompose. So there's no set time period per se. If you have a garden and you actively use this compost, which by the way is almost like magic gold, because it's so rich and it's almost better than anything you can buy. Yeah. Um, then you can actually become quite deliberate about your composting. And by chopping things up um, into small pieces, for example, is another way to get things moving much more quickly because you increase the surface area of what's going to be decomposed right away and make that available. Um, to the bacteria and other microorganisms in there. And, and so there are ways um, to increase the speed of that composting and to do it in a way that then you can use it directly in your garden. And um, again, that's, it's pretty satisfying being able to do that with all of your household waste, um, especially when you have a place for it to go. Um, and like I say, it literally can be better than what you can buy out on the market. Yeah, that sounds great. And it sounds like a fun little science, science experiment for your kids. So I definitely think we're going to get a compost because we have a garden and we should definitely do it. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> you know, it was something that one of my my 14 year old in kindergarten actually gave a presentation to his class on composting because we were composting then. And it's just so, you know, everybody can get into it from young kids, like you say, to the elderly. It's a great um, kind of scientific experiment you can be running at home and learn so much about um, nutrient cycling and what that is and why we want to even fertilize with such great nutrient sources like that. Um, there's, there is life in that compost. It's not just sort of dead dirt decomposing to deadness. It's actually very alive with microorganisms. And, you know, it's another show for another time, but it's exactly that type of fertility that we need to be adding to our soils um, in what, and as part of a sort of more regenerative approach to producing our food. Um, but, but for this particular segment, it's also <laughs> a great way to take care of a lot of the food waste we generate. Yeah, that's great. So let's talk about, because this is timely, we're heading towards spring, um, how to grow some e easy things. So herbs and zesting, how can that cut down on food waste? Yeah. So, you know, often, for example, when we buy um, citrus we squeeze the juice out and throw away the lemon or the orange when the zest is actually 
filled with all sorts of great taste. It has the oils of that particular fruit or vegetable. And um, it's a great way to get the flavor out even more. And you can freeze zest as well. So you could use it in cocktails later and other things. You can also preserve zest um, by boiling it. You can do it either as a savory preserve, or you could even do it as a sweet preserve and candy things um, like zest. So there's a way to actually use things that you might not even think about and a way to even get more out of a lemon, for example, by zesting and using the juice versus just using the juice alone. Um, you can also even get another life out of zest. So if you use it one time and one thing and like a, say a cocktail, you could actually, you know, soak it in water and reuse it again. There's that much life in a, in a piece of zest to do that. When it comes to herbs, it's one of those things where, you know, I know that if I buy a big bunch of herbs from the supermarket, for example, of basil or thyme, I may not use all of that by the time um, it starts to wilt in the refrigerator. And so there's a couple of things you can think about with herbs. You can freeze a lot of herbs. Um, you can also dry herbs. So that once they're getting beyond a certain point, just dry them and then you can continue to use them for a while. The other thing to think about that's kind of nice, too, is growing your own herbs in a kitchen. Uh, it's not that difficult to grow herbs. And then you can literally pick off what you want um, for any given meal and use a absolutely fresh herb right off the plant right away. So there's Lots of ways to sort of get the most out of both herbs and, and other aromatics that you're using in your cooking. That's great. I love all of those tips. You're inspiring me to get more adventurous in the awesome. kitchen. Awesome. <laughs> so let's talk about families with little kids. So when my kids were really little and they were toddlers and babies, I felt like I was throwing away food all the time, right? Because you're feeding them. You never know how much they're going to eat. Yeah. And you keep reheating the same leftover food over <laughs> and over. Or maybe they take a bite and then they're done with the meal. So it's how many times can you really reheat it? So what are some tips for families with young children to reduce food waste? <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, we have the same thing. I have to say my husband's really good at eating everybody else's food when they're done <laughs> and haven't finished it. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, there's one way. Um, you know, when it comes to especially baby food and things like that, it's smart to do things in bigger batches and then aliquot them out and make them into smaller um, smaller portions so that as you pull it out, you're not oh you're not pulling out more than what you might need. Um, right. Using things like an ice cube tray are really great. So let's say you want to make carrots for your for your baby and you puree the carrots and you make a big thing of it, you can actually aliquot it out into ice cube trays and then just take small aliquots out as you need them. Um, I know at one point um, my kids really loved chicken nuggets and it drove me crazy that <laughs> I would go buy this overprocessed nugget at the supermarket. And so I just started making them in huge batches and freezing them. Yeah, And great. that way I could just pull out a little bit and I would then only have to make that once a month, but then I would have it for the whole month. So 
again, it requires a little more thought and planning, but it's definitely something that can be done. Now, if you say hand your baby a banana and they take one bite, we can kind of go back to these tips of, okay, so what do you do with that banana? You could just throw it into the freezer then and use the leftover later on. Um, so when you're thinking about kind of fruit words, one bite taken out, you know, think about ways that you could either, um, repurpose them or reserve them at a different time. And again, your freezers are, your freezer is your friend in this case. You are right in that for certain things like meat, you do not want to be defrosting and refreezing over and over again. So it's really important um, to do that kind of only, you know, once and then pull out what you need as you need it. Um, but I wouldn't advise necessarily refreezing uh, something that's been previously frozen and served. Okay, great. These are these all of these tips conjure up memories of um, my grandmother, <laughs> you know, depression era uh, grandparents, right? Or Absolutely. even parents who really made the most of everything they used and there was no waste. So we, we definitely have to get back to that type of time. <laughs> that is absolutely right. And it's really, um, it's kind of amazing when you start to focus on this, how much you will actually both observe how much you're, you might be wasting, but then be able to sort of, you know, uh, recoup a lot of that as well. So it's one of these things that I think a lot of us are blind to most of the time. We don't really pay attention, but the numbers add up over time. And so the more we can be conscious of it and do things to minimize food waste, uh, that will go a long, long way to solving this problem. Okay, great. So let's talk about upcycled foods. I was reading about this on Food Print. I had never heard of it. What are they? And can consumers actually buy them? Yeah, upcycled foods are interesting. So what upcycled foods do is they kind of, uh, let's see, they go, you know, it's really about waste on the supply side. So let's say, um, for example, you're canning chickpeas somewhere. You will have a lot of additional chickpea water in your processing that typically would have just gone to waste. And so one example of an industry that has learned how to upcycle is by capturing the chickpea water, which is also called aquafaba, and literally creating a whole new product out of that that can be used as a vegan substitute for egg whites. It turns out you can actually froth them up and get that kind of same texture um, from a chickpea water that you can from an egg white. It doesn't have all the same properties, but it sure has a lot of them. And it's been an interesting industry to see a waste product then become something with value that can be sold. And that's a great example of uh, in, an upcycled product in the industry. And are there companies selling these products? Where can we find them? There are. Um, I think Sir Kensington is one example okay. of a company that is using these products. We have other examples, too, at foodprint.org. Um, a lot of these companies are likely smaller companies than you've heard of before, but um, 
are literally making a business out of something that was waste to begin with. Okay, that's that's fascinating. So where can listeners go to get more information about you and your work and also about these food issues? Our website, foodprint.org, is just, it's such a great site in the sense that we are trying to provide folks with information uh, at the top level, what you can do if that's all you have time for to get, all the way down to the whys, the hows, and the science behind it. And so uh, if you visit foodprint.org, you can really, you can spend as little or as much time as you want to um, in terms of understanding not just food waste, but how are foods produced, how you can reduce your food print out there, um, and how to get better food as well and better produced food. And we spend a lot of time on the site talking about that as well. Um, so encourage the list listeners to check out that site. And we also provide a lot of information on labels out there, what they mean, what they don't, um, and how to really find what you're looking for. So lots of really great tips. Also, what foods might be um, in season. We have a seasonal food guide so you can find out what's in season and then, you know, make sure, you know, you can find the recipes to use those things. Um, at the right time, buying in season has a lot of benefits, like getting the best of the nutrients and just the best tasting kind of food. So there are things for foodies. There are things for people who are just wanting to, you know, make the best of it and make the most out of the food they have. Um, and then there's places for people to dig a lot deeper into the food system. Great. And we'll link to the food print in the show notes. Dr. Rangan, thank you so much for your time today. There is so much information and so many great tips here for, for us to, to sort through. So thank you. Um, thanks so much. And Julie, one more resource that would be really good to link to on food waste would be Refed. Um, Refed is an organization that has been set up to deal explicitly with food waste alone um, they've been tracking it, and it is because of the work done by the folks at Refed that we actually know as much as we know. Um, the Refed site also has a lot of statistics on food waste, where it's going, um, and why it's happening, and um, and are really working on the actual solutions that we need at the policy level to remedy some of this. Great. I'll be sure to include that as well. Thank you again for your time today. Thank you, Julie. It was great to be here. I'm Julie Revelant, and thank you for tuning into this episode of Food Issues. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review or share it with a friend. Also, be sure to sign up for my newsletter at julierevelant.com for exclusive updates and follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 